Why don't we go ahead and stand and turn with our Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one, we have some in the back there for you. Uh, turn over to Matthew 14, which is where we are going to pick up again. And uh, we are going to read God's holy and inerrant word starting in verse 1. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been, had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent, and he had John beheaded in prison, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that as we dive into your word that you would open it up. God, that you would help us to understand God, that uh, just like we will commune with you in communion, uh, we will commune with you now. And we pray that you would uh, please just take away the distractions um, that exist from the rest of this day and from the week ahead or from the week behind. And God, help us to interact with you, to worship you, to learn from you as we look at your word in Matthew 14. We pray that you would bless it to our good and to your glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't know about you guys, but uh, I, I like watching a good movie, right? Um, I like watching uh, a good action movie um, sometimes. I like watching a good war movie uh, sometimes. I like a good drama that doesn't have too much you know, cheesy drama in it, but like you know, good drama. Um, uh, not like TV doesn't have enough drama in, uh, in today um, or in my own life enough drama. But uh, you know, good comedy and so on and so on. But one of the categories I like the most is when a character is standing against opposition. All right, so when a character is standing against a particular opposition. And so I thought about a few movies um, that came to mind when I thought about this particular topic. Um, the first one is this. Um, a movie called Rudy, right? So many of you guys have seen the movie Rudy or heard about the story. This kind of scrawny kid who grows up around Notre Dame. He loves Notre Dame. He lives and breathes kind of for Notre Dame. He, he begins to work at the school and he actually starts, um, you know, trying out for the football team, right? And he makes the team and, uh, he, but, you know, no one ever thinks that he's going to become anything, right? He's on a practice squad for a long time. And he actually, against all odds, he gets to dress up and to go out on the field um, for, you know, one play and one game and makes his, his dad proud and all that kind of stuff. But there's one example, right? Rudy stood up against all odds, right? Uh, against all the opposition that was saying, you cannot do this. You are, you know, five foot nothing. You're not going to be a football player. And he ends up playing football, right? Um, because 
because of, of the will inside of him, the strength that, that he has to carry on. I think of another movie. Uh, it's an old Civil War movie. Some of you guys may have seen it. It's called Glory. And uh, it's about uh, this guy um, who Matthew Broderick plays. Um, I think he's a general that, uh, or a captain or something like that. But he, he is tasked with doing the impossible, right? Standing against all the opposition of taking an all-black regiment to make them combat ready and to fight in the Civil War. And, uh, and throughout the movie, you see all the opposition that he faced from without, from people telling him it can't be done or it shouldn't be done, and then the opposition within his own regiment, in which people are like, this is not going to you know, actually happen. You're not going to actually get these guys ready to fight in a battle, and he does. And they stand up kind of in a victorious um, way as they charge the fort kind of at the end and, and, and make you know, a lot of people proud, encourage a lot of more African-American troops to come and fight in the Civil War. And then that's, that's one, right? One more example, just for example's sake. Uh, one of my favorite more recent movies is the movie Amazing Grace, which follows the life of a guy named William Wilberforce. And um, William Wilberforce, uh, many of you guys know, he stood against slavery and the slave trade in England. And the movie kind of follows his fight to end the slave trade. And he, he fights time and time and time again and again. From without, he faces opposition with people that don't want to stop the slave trade because of maybe economic profit or, or racism in their own hearts or whatever it may be. But he is driven by biblical principles to say this is wrong and this is unjust and I will continue to fight in the place that God has put me to see this come to an end. And so the movie follows his uh, time and time again. Every, I think it was spring or something like that, he came and put a bill before um, the parliament there and, to, and it got struck down. And it happened again and again and again. He fought his whole career standing against the opposition and finally the slave trade was ended there in England. But the point is that opposition is a part of our lives. No matter who we are, big or small, whatever our position in life, opposition is a part of our life. And we will either stand against it or it will stand against us. And this is very evident in our text today when we look at the life and the death of John the Baptist. And so when we look at this, I kind of have one main point for us today, and, and it's our title here, Standing Firm Against or Amidst the Opposition. And we have to know that in this life, if we are faithful in being laborers in God's kingdom, we are going to face opposition. Jesus told us to expect that. We are going to face opposition as we live our life faithfully out before the world. And we, as we try to build the church that God has called us to build, as we are, uh, are laboring in the kingdom of God, we will face opposition. But the clear call from this text today is to stand firm amidst that opposition. So we're going to take a, um, a look at these two ideas of standing firm and opposition through this text in Matthew 14. So first, standing firm in the building of the kingdom of God. So we just read from Matthew 14 a story here and an incident that takes place a long time ago. And we are introduced to two main characters, right? We have uh, John the Baptist and then we have Herod the Tetrarch. And you guys probably remember John the Baptist. You know, we talk about him a lot. He's a prominent figure in the gospel accounts. Um, and actually, last time I was here in August, uh, I preached on Matthew 11. And it was about John the Baptist when he was in prison. 
But if you remember, John the Baptist was a, a forerunner. He was one who came before Jesus to talk him up. He paved the way for Jesus' public ministry. His whole job was to point to Jesus. That was his job, to point to Jesus and say, look, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Prior to his arrival on the scene. And it was actually a common thing for people maybe of royalty or something else to have a a front runner or someone to come before them to talk them up as they came into town or something like that. And so this was John the Baptist's job. If we look back at a few verses from earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 specifically, this is, Ma- this is um, uh, John the Baptist talking. He says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it's here. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, later in verse 11, it says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so this was John the Baptist's job. He was talking up Jesus. He was lifting him high before his arrival and saying, look, I'm not the one you're supposed to be looking for. The one that we've been looking for, and he goes back to the prophet Isaiah and says, the one who was prophesied long, long time ago, Jesus, that's who it is. And that's who is coming. And so John was doing his job well. And let's go back to our story here in Matthew 14. The other main character is King Herod. And one of the commentators pointed out that this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And I believe that that's the Herod that's in the, the Christmas story, the, the accounts that we um, have just kind of looked at over Christmas time. So Herod, he's hearing about the fame of Jesus. He's hearing about things that are going on, maybe hearing about the miracles or the healings or the great works that he is doing. And he's hearing these things from afar. And he begins to make a connection between John and Jesus. And he essentially believes that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then in in verses 3 through 5, Matthew, he recounts something that probably happened a a long time ago or a while ago with John the Baptist and Herod. And uh, it's actually one of those things that we're surprised that it's in the Bible, right? We're surprised that this thing's happening. It's kind of like you, you think these Bible stories that we hear about from our youth when we hear them, and rightly so, we try to shelter our kids from some of the, the actual gory details of the story, but the Bible is full of crazy, just crazy stories that belong more on like episodes of Jerry Springer or Desperate Housewives or stuff like that. I mean, they belong there, right? The Bible's full of them, and this is one of, the, this is one of those stories with John. I mean, it is a hard, hard story. If you think about what is going on, and if you imagine yourself even being there, I mean, it's one of those stories that's like, man, that's in the Bible? But it is. And um, as I was reading this story, I was kind of confused about who was who and what was going on. And so I kind of went to one of the commentaries to help kind of clear this up. And, and I found a good quote that kind of talks about what this first scene, what's going on between John and Herod that John gets in so much trouble, why he gets in prison. And he says this, The affair of Herod Antipas and Herodias and the subsequent divorce of their spouses in order to marry each other was a huge scandal among the Jews. And then it says, In Leviticus 18.16 and 20.21, sexual relations and marriage between one's brother, brother's wife is prohibited. 
Thus, John's, it is not lawful. And so basically what's happening here is John was calling out King Herod because he was sleeping and then marrying his brother's wife. Okay, so he took his brother's wife. He wanted her for his own. He slept with her and married her. And he wanted to actually put uh, John to death because he was the one that said, look, you can't do this. It's not right. It's against God's law. It's against God's command. And he wanted to put him to death. But obviously the text says that he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Right? And so he didn't put him to death. He put him in prison. But what was John doing here? John was standing up for God's commandments. He was standing up just for what was right, for what was pure, for what was just. And, and that's what he was doing. And he, it wasn't just a Joe Schmo on the street, but it was a king. And so there's a weightiness to this, more so than if it was just kind of his neighbor calling him out. But he was calling out the king. It's like calling out the president of the United States on an affair that he is having and taking someone else's wife to be his own. Right? Maybe in our country, you know, you'd, you'd get a slap on the wrist or a, um, maybe, maybe thrown in jail, uh, you know, but other countries, I mean, you would get thrown in jail, maybe killed for making a comment like that. And this is the situation where John finds himself in prison, standing up for just what is right, what is holy, what's in God's word. And he's doing that. He's standing up for what is true and good. And John was clear. His call was to build the kingdom of God, right? Earlier we said that he said the kingdom of God is at hand. And he saw himself as a laborer in that kingdom. He was building the kingdom of God. He was preparing the way for Jesus. He was a mouthpiece. He was a trumpet announcing the coming of Jesus. And he pointed to the one that was greater than him, King Jesus. And he was just being a faithful servant. He knew where his ultimate allegiance was, whom he should obey and why he should obey them. And he didn't care whether the opposition was a normal village person or the king himself. He had to stand up for what was right and true. And he knew what was right in God's eyes. And he did what was right, even when it was costly. And I think about this as as we even begin to look at the, the call to stand firm. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us in our daily lives? You know, we know that we have been called... We've been called to stand firm, right? We've been called to build uh, the kingdom. We are, we are co-laborers with Christ. That's, that's our position. We are laboring alongside of Jesus in the building of his church, in the building of the kingdom of God. We know that we're going to face opposition, right? We said that earlier. Jesus told us to expect opposition. It's going to happen. It's going to come one way or another. But we know that our call, just like John, is to stand firm to stand firm in the things that we believe, in the things that we have been called to. So my question is, what might God be calling you and me to stand firm in? To stand firm for righteousness' sake or justice' sake or mercy's sake? What what is God calling you and I to stand firm in? Well, maybe I hear a few things to kind of get our minds thinking about application. Maybe on a a national or or international level. Maybe it's standing up against a particular issue, right? Maybe it's against abortion or something like like that. Or maybe it's standing up for something. Standing up for maybe biblical marriage, right? A marriage between one man and one woman. Maybe it's standing against racially motivated injustice like we were praying about earlier. Or maybe it's standing up for a particular avenue of justice and mercy and truthfulness. And maybe it's calling our leaders to stand up for those things in our government. 
and our, our workplaces and our play places, these things are clearly a part of building the kingdom of God. And maybe we're called to stand up for some of those things. And maybe the Holy Spirit is reminding you of some of those areas in which he is particularly calling you to stand up in. But let's not just leave it up there kind of in the clouds or at 40,000 feet. Let's bring it down to our own lives. What about a personal level? What, if, what about standing against unrighteousness, greed, lust, pride, fear, and all other kinds of sin within our own hearts? Because it's not just standing up for these things or standing against things in the, you know, the, the world outside of us or around us. We are called to stand up for those things, but we are called also in our own hearts. And more importantly, like Sant said, the change starts within our own hearts first. Maybe it's standing up against the greed that always wants just a little bit more. Right? What's that, that famous quote um, from uh, what is it, one of the Rockefellers or something like that where someone asked him, like, how much is, is enough? And he honestly answers, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Maybe it's the lust that says, you know what, one more look on the internet one more look at this site, or this internet pornography, or this internet something, or whatever it is, it, it's okay. It won't hurt anybody. It's not hurting my wife, my family, my church, my kids. Maybe it's the pride that says, you know what, I'm more righteous than the, uh, the one that lives in the suburbs because I live in the hood and I minister to poor people, right? We deal with that here. Maybe it's the fear that says, maybe I should just keep sitting in my cubicle and keep my mouth shut because no one wants to hear about this God stuff at my place of work. Maybe it's the fear that keeps us from going across the street to introduce ourselves to our neighbor and say, hey, how's it going? To invite them over for a meal, to share life with them and and, and share the love of Jesus with them. Maybe it's that fear we're standing up against. But let's look also standing up, right? Standing up for love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Maybe it's the love that says, I'm going to sacrifice my peaceful Saturday night so that I can babysit for a single mom who needs just some time alone. Maybe it's standing up for that. Or the patience that says, my child is not as sanctifying or sanctifying as quickly as I would like them to, but I'm going to wait prayerfully and patiently for the Lord to do his work. Or the self-control that says, I'm not going to judge people when I have the first interaction with them, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. We could go on and on with applications on a personal level, but standing firm in these things also is building the kingdom of God. It is building the kingdom of God around us, inside of us. It is expanding what God is doing. And it is modeled here clearly before us in, in John the Baptist in Matthew 14. So we've seen here also the, the call to stand firm in the building of the kingdom of God. And now we're going to see in a deeper level what we've already seen in the text so far, but more so the opposition to the kingdom of God. And we're going to camp out a little bit more here uh, on this second point because the text, I really think, uh, unveils a lot of things about the opposition that the kingdom faces. Okay, and so let's go back to the text. Matthew continues in verse 6. He is setting the scene for a special occasion. King Herod's birthday, right? A birthday party. And what follows in verses 6 through 11 is a pretty sad turn of events. It's a pretty horrific scene if we think about it in a lot of ways. But it's a keen window into the opposition to the kingdom. So here we have the daughter of Herodias, which is his niece, uh, the Herod's niece in this, in this sense. 
whom one commentator said was probably about 12 to 14 years old, and she dances in a way before the king at his birthday party that pleases him. And so he says, I will give you whatever you want, right? He says he, he gives an oath, which is a, a strong promise, and he says, whatever you might ask, I will give it to you. And so we have the situation where we're at a party, um, there's a lot of things going on, we know what happens at parties, and we're going to explore what are some of the things we learn about the opposition to the kingdom. And the first one is this, that the opposition is seductive. The opposition is seductive. Now, you know, you may not see it on the surface, but the more kind of you study it and the more you think about it and interact with commentators, they seem to say that there's more of a a seductive or even shocking element to this young girl's dance, right? She's uh, 12 to 14 years old. Um, She's dancing before uh, these men of the court um, on a birthday. This was not the kind of dance that a proud mom and dad goes to see after months and months of ballet lessons, you know, at the mall. That's not the kind of dance that's going on here. But, and, and one commentator puts it this way really, really well. He says, birthday parties were at the time customary in Greek, but not in Jewish circles. It was a pagan custom, and a pagan morals apparently ruled the house. The daughter of Herodias danced for the king who was her adopted father. And we may guess that the men were inebriated and the dance had a sensual nature. So here, I just want to point out from that text that there is a seductive element to opposition. We cannot be fooled that one of the opposition's greatest weapons is seductive manipulation. Seductive manipulation. And it's not hard to see. I I thought about this. I was like, okay, what does this look like in our own world, in our own city, right? It's not hard to see in our city. That seductive opposition or seductive manipulation is all over the place, right? We see it unashamedly advertised on our billboards as we're driving into the city. We see it advertised on the top of our taxi cabs or on the side of our casinos. Our, our, Our city reeks of this seductive manipulation, It says, I want to sugarcoat these lies to make them look beautiful. I want to make them look attractive, just like the dance. And it seduces us into its power. Next, we see this. It is subtle. It's not only seductive, the opposition is, but it's subtle. Notice what happens in verse 8. The mom Herodias jumps in to seize the opportunity to take care of some family business, right? She says, okay, this is the time for me to get back, get back some revenge, take care of business. And so what does she do? She asks for John not only to be killed, but also to be beheaded and for his head to come on a platter in the party to the mom. She, it says, prompted by her mother. That's what the text says, prompted by her mother. You see how subtle that is. The mom is sitting, the dance has just happened, and he says, okay, great dance. I like this. Whatever you want, it's yours. You name it. And the mom says, ah, an opportunity, an opportunity. And so she says, hey, daughter, ask for John's head, right? He was the one that spoke against us. He was one that spoke against me and, and your stepfather, you know, uh, sleeping together and, and, and having um, an affair and getting married. Ask for his head. And so we see here that it was subtle. Given the opportunity, she jumps for revenge. And Herodias and her daughter subtly oppose the kingdom of God for their own benefit. 
for their own good, for their own entertainment, for their own security as a family. They oppose the kingdom of God in a subtle way. You know, I've come to believe that biblically and experientially, one of, of, of Satan's greatest um, weapons is subtlety. One of the oppositions uh, to the kingdom's greatest weapon is subtlety. You know, we can think out about you know, ourselves and our, our own lives and how subtle that, that old man, that old woman, the flesh inside of us tricks us into doing something, Right? It says, you know, um, you know, you think about the, uh, the devil on one side and, and the good person on the other side, but how easily, how subtly it comes. And I thought about a few examples, right? Here's one from my own life. It's late and I'm tired. The baby's crying. And I hear that voice inside of my head that says, maybe if you just lay there, maybe if you just lay there, your wife will get up. Your wife will get up and go take care of the baby. After all, you've worked. You've had a long, hard day at the office. You deserve this, right? And so shamefully, I lay there in bed. And I wait for my wife to get up and to go take care of the baby because I, I don't want to do it. How subtle that was, right? I'm already tired. Satan's taking advantage of that. And that subtle voice of my flesh saying, look, you don't got to do this. Maybe another one. Work is stressing you out. You have a whole list of things to do um, after you go home after, after work. Maybe you have a break and that voice inside of your head says, you know what, why don't you just have another soft drink, another coffee, another smoke, maybe another little Debbie cake, a glass of wine, another TV show, or you fill in the blank to kind of whatever your guilty pleasure is. You deserve that. You need that. You can't operate your day without that. Not that these things are bad in and of themselves, but it's the way in which we run to them as our idols the way in which we long for them, the way in which we trust them, the way in which we say we need them more than we need Jesus. But see how subtle that is, right? Just one more, right? You know, coffee is one of those things for me, which I love coffee, and, uh, and it teeter-totters between kind of idolatry and, and a, a healthy enjoyment of something that God's given me. And how, how subtle that, that tension is. Just, just another cup. You need just, just one more. Whatever that would be for you. I don't know what that is, but you do. Maybe the Holy Spirit's telling you that. Maybe uh, on another, maybe somewhat humorous example that I think points to, or proves the point of subtlety and, and subdu- seductiveness really well. I don't know about you guys, but when I go to the, um, the mall, right, I walk past the food court, all kind of smells are getting me. Um, and uh, one of the things that I always fall for, right, is Chinese food, okay? And uh, Chinese food is one of those things that I, I like it, I do, but I always regret it, right, at, at the end. And, uh, and you, you can think about this, how subtle this is, how seductive it is, right? You smell the Chinese food as you're walking up to it, and then, and then what happens is the, uh, the, the person, the lady or the guy, hands you what? They hand you a piece of chicken, right? You know, all, all, you know, all that nice sugary whatever it is on the outside, and they hand you that piece of chicken, and you eat it, right? And you think to yourself... Okay, you've been here before, right? You've been here before. You know that's going to be bad. But what do you do? You say, oh, I think I'll eat lunch here, right? And so you go and you get the lunch and you start eating that Chinese food. And, and you know, for the first few bites, it's like, man, this stuff is great. Like, I, I love this stuff. It's going well. And, uh, and this is treating me good, you know? And then you keep going and you're just like, I probably should stop. But you keep going, 
And because it's like, oh, this is good. It's, it's just so subtle, right? And then finally you find yourself eating the whole tray of the Chinese food and you feel just awful. I mean, awful the rest of the day, right? You're tired, you don't feel good, your stomach's messed up. And you know, you knew at the beginning that this wasn't a good idea. But you went there because it was a subtle and seductive um, path that you went down. And that's just one of those examples, right? It's kind of a silly example, but uh, it's this chain of events that happens in our life. And you know what? If the opposition uh, doesn't crush us with being seductive or being subtle, we also see from our text that it seeks to silence. It seeks to silence, right? So it's, it's subtle, it is, and it is seductive a lot of times in its own way. It may not be in a perverse sexual way, but it may be in another way to seduce us, to draw us in. But if those things don't get us, it's, it seeks to silence us. Go back to verse 8 here, and she says, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And, and verse 9 and 10 goes on to say that that's actually what happened. He sends you know, his people to go off to get the head of John the Baptist, and he brings it back. He brings back the, platter, the head on a platter in the middle of the party. You know, it wasn't enough for John to be in prison, but he had to be silenced for good. That mouthpiece of the Lord, the one who prepares the way of the Lord, must be shut up, they said. It must be stopped, must be silenced. You know, you had to think, what was the uh, Herodias thinking, you know, in that time? Or, her, or the daughter? Or King Herod? No one talks to me like that. No one tells me what to do. Who are you to tell me uh, 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 or inform me of what's right and what's wrong? I'll do what I want. I'm the king or I'm the, the queen. And she says, this person must be shut up for good. I must silence the opposition to my life and my kingdom. And so we see that the opposition to the kingdom of God seeks to silence it in any way it can. And we probably could look at historical example after historical example after historical example of ways in which the world opposed to the kingdom of God has tried to silence it for good. And yet it can't be silenced. It cannot be silenced, no matter if it's emperors that are seeking to outlaw Christianity or if it's people burning Christians at the stake at a party, you know, like Nero did, or whether it's um, in, in the legislature of trying to shut us up and shut us out of things, maybe whether it's, you know, shutting us out of public schools or whether it's, you know, whatever it is. There are, are people that seek to, to oppose the kingdom of God by silencing it. And that is one way in which the devil tries to work, to silence the kingdom of God. And so we can see that this is a pretty instructive passage on opposition to the kingdom of God. We see here that it's subtle, and we see here that it's seductive, and we see here that it also seeks to silence its own opposition, right? Its own opposition to its own kingdom. And I want to ask a question as we kind of, kind of draw to a close a little bit. What does this passage have to do with Jesus? What does this pass, how does this passage teach us about Jesus? It's a good question to ask when we come to any, any text of the Bible. Jesus himself gives us warrant to ask that question, to say that question. He says, look, the Bible is about me. It points to me. So we're asking the question, what, how does this point us to Jesus? And as I began to study some of the connections between John and Jesus in Matthew 14... We started to see some things, right? John is faithful through opposition, and so is Jesus, right? Time after time, Jesus is faithful amidst the opposition that he faces in town after town after town. 
Here's another thing. John is put to death for being faithful to God's commands, and so is Jesus. Jesus being faithful to the mission that God had given him, he is put to death by the opposition. John's disciples carry the body away for burial, and so we are also reminded of Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Christ and burying it. Another one that the commentator points out, and he says this, So Herod gave the order, foreshadowing Pilate, who would also be the reluctant executioner of Jesus. It's kind of interesting how many parallels there are in the death of John the Baptist and in the death of Jesus Christ. And even you think about John's position as the front runner, the, 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 the forebearer, the one who is preparing the way for Jesus. It's interesting, those connections there, right? Well, one uh, pastor, Pastor Doriani, he helps kind of bring this all together. And he says this, Jesus appears first and last in our story. And his presence lends hope to the whole. The episode begins when Herod hears about Jesus. At its end, the report of John's death goes to Jesus, who then continues his ministry in another place. Jesus did not withdraw because he was afraid to die. And just to explain there, the next section that that Santa will preach on next week talks about Jesus withdrawing from that place and going on continuing in his ministry. The quote continues on, it says this, But because it was not yet time for him to die. Indeed, months later, Jesus died, much as John did, murdered by unjust rulers for telling the truth. Yet Jesus' death differed from John's in ways that give us hope. After Jesus died, he rose and appeared to many eyewitnesses, John died as an individual. Jesus died as a representative of the human race. In the place of all who believe in him, great as John was, Jesus is the one who deserves our trust. And so he pulls all this together, right? All this stuff about John and his death and Jesus and how they're connected and how, yes, it's a story about John, And we are to emulate his example to stand firm amidst opposition. But how much more? Look to the one who did it perfectly, Jesus. Our text is about Jesus. We know John's example wasn't perfect. And neither is our example of being perfect. It reminds me of of some of my favorite verses from Hebrews 12. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, yes, John stood firm. And so we are called to stand firm. But you know what we're supposed to be reminded of even more? Jesus stood firm. Jesus finished the race so that we could run the race that was set before us, so that we now can presently run this race and do what God has called us to do, standing up for the things that we're supposed to be standing up for, out there and in here. The only way we can do that is because of Jesus. And he stood firm amidst the opposition so we could. And it's not to say that we earn our salvation by standing firm against the opposition because Christ already did that. We can never do that. But the only way in which we can stand firm is because he did. 
is because Jesus did. And he gave us his Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who helps us to say no to the flesh and no to the things of the world and no to the opposition and yes to Jesus. And that is the way in which we can build a kingdom and move forward and stand against the opposition is because Jesus did. And he lives with inside of us through his Holy Spirit. And that's so important for us to remember. We need to fix our eyes on Christ like John and to stand firm against the opposition, whatever it may be, whether it is out there or whether it is inside of us. And the only way we can do that is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. You know, this morning as I was working through this text and I was, I was looking through it and praying through it and thinking about what God was calling us to do as a congregation and standing firm against the opposition, um, it brought my mind a, a hymn. And it's a modern hymn uh, by Keith and Christy Getty and Stuart Townsend. And it's called, O Church Arise. And I just want to read you guys the lyrics. I love this, this hymn. Um, one, because it is just a very uh, special hymn for me. I think when I, I first heard it back at my old church, um, it was just a great time. I heard it in, in concert there um, with the Gettys. Um, but also the words of this are so pertinent to this text, so pertinent to building the kingdom, of standing firm, of trusting Jesus, of walking in the Holy Spirit and moving forward. And so pertinent for us as a church in this stage and where we are. Where we are as a church and trying to see this church built and established in this city. Trying to see the kingdom of God go forth. God said the kingdom of God is at hand. He is building his church. We may look across the city and get discouraged about everything going on. Or we may look inside of our own hearts and get discouraged. But we need to look at Jesus and what he is doing. He said his church will be built. And not even the gates of hell will stand against it. And that's what this hymn is about. And I want you guys, whether it's just to, to think about it in your own hearts, to close your eyes, just listen to the words of this hymn as we bring this text to a close. And it says this, O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave, the victory march continues till the day. Every eye and heart shall see him. So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
God, we thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. The sword that is spoken of here is your word, is your truth, and how beautiful this text is from Matthew 14. Yes, it's a very sober story. It's a very graphic story. It's an all-rated story. But we are instructed through it. We are taught, we are strengthened, we are encouraged by your word. God, we pray that you would help us to stand firm amidst the opposition. Whether that be out there, around us, in the world, in our cities, in our our jobs, in our families, our friendships, whatever it may be, whether it's inside of us, our own sinful hearts as we fight the flesh, that old man, the old woman inside of us, God, we pray that you would come, that you would put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle. God, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And God, that we would long for the day when you come and you finish your work and we stand with you in glory. God, we thank you for encouraging us. We thank you for edifying us through your word. We pray now that you would please do the same as we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper, your body and your blood for us, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.